Hi, welcome to season four of the Aced It podcast, where we translate science into sense. So you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, coming to you from Sam Houston State University in Texas, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. Aced It is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out our website, jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. The Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, a.k.a. JCoin, purposely focuses on people with opioid use disorders and justice involvement. Why is that, some might ask? When the National Institute on Drug Abuse looked at the landscape of opioid use in the United States, who it harmed, how it harmed, how it spread, and how it might be addressed, they realized that people who had been incarcerated in prison or jail were particularly vulnerable. When a person is separated from their opioids without proper medication, a dangerous combination ferments. Their tolerance goes down while their cravings intensify. Not only that, but every clinical measure of support and stability needed for recovery is often broken, weakened, or lost for good when a person experiences even a short stay of incarceration. In response to this perfect storm of overdose conditions, NIDA formed an ambitious network of studies to learn about the issues with the goal of saving as many lives as possible. Scientists working in collaborative teams set about looking at the scope of the problem, testing medications and treatment models in various settings, developing and testing linkages to care programs, and creating resources based on what they were learning in real time. One such study recently published set about looking at the scope of the problem by using existing data to investigate whether individuals who experienced incarceration were at a different risk of dying from overdose as compared to the general population. Dr. Shabar Ranaparwala and colleagues matched North Carolina's Department of Public Safety incarceration release data from January 1, 2000 to January 31, 2018 with North Carolina death records during that same time. The team looked at how many individuals were listed with a contributing cause of death categorized as either opium, heroin, other opioids, methadone, and other synthetic narcotics, commonly fentanyl or analogs. If you're interested in the math and how they went about calculating mortality rates for both those released from prison and the general public, I recommend that you read the brief four-page article in which they explain their process. What they found, though, is that during a time that opioid deaths went down in the general population, they went up in those released from incarceration. Now, keep in mind that they were looking at 2017. Since that time, and especially in the last two years, opioid-related deaths have risen significantly. But during the time the study authors looked at, deaths declined in the general North Carolina population by 10% but rose in the post-incarceration population by 32%. They also found that from 2016 to 2018, fentanyl and its analogs contributed to most of those deaths in the post-incarceration population. In fact, 
The risk of a person who had experienced incarceration dying from synthetic narcotics in the two weeks following release was more than 50 times higher than a person in the North Carolina general population. It was just over 20 times higher within one year of release. This shows us not only how vulnerable this population is, but also highlights how important the two weeks following release are. So, we know who's the most vulnerable to overdose death and when. We also know that Narcan, administered correctly, can prevent overdose death. But, as anyone working in this space already knows, implementing even simple programs that save lives can be fraught with issues. Dr. Chris Gorella and colleagues used a systematic approach to find and review studies assessing opioid overdose prevention programs. They wanted to know what kind of opioid overdose interventions were available in correctional facilities and in community settings, what factors influenced the implementation of those interventions, and the outcome of those interventions and whether they were successful or not in treating opioid overdose deaths among the prison population. So they used a systematic approach to comb the literature on studies of opioid overdose prevention published in English between 2010 and 2020. They ended up with 43 studies and five study themes. The studies either looked at the acceptability, the accessibility, the effectiveness, or the feasibility of various opioid overdose prevention programs, or they sought to better understand the overdose risk environment. The study authors found that across studies, personal history of heroin use, and especially having a previously overdosed or witnessed an overdose impacted both a person's knowledge of naloxone and their willingness to be trained to administer it. The community context also mattered. It mattered whether people perceived that naloxone was available, if there was stigma associated with carrying naloxone, and if they feared police or criminal justice involvement from being in an overdose situation. When it came to accessibility, it seems that access to naloxone is largely a function of the community supply, mostly through syringe exchange programs or other community providers. Although getting folks naloxone at discharge from prison or jail is critical, the study findings highlight the need to link people to community-based providers for ongoing access and showed the importance of correctional systems and community providers working together to facilitate successful reentry. When it came to effectiveness of overdose prevention approaches, particularly across settings, the authors noted that while there is evidence to suggest these programs work, there needs to be quote, more rigorous research, unquote. To be honest, scientists say that a lot. Perhaps you, listening now, will be the one to provide that more rigorous research. Perhaps a time series analysis. And perhaps, as the authors suggest, you might use the evaluation of Scotland's National Naloxone Program as a model for your own study. When it came to studies that looked at challenges to implementing overdose prevention programs, they found logistical issues within prisons related to scheduling, staffing, and resources, as well as lack of staff understanding about how to integrate overdose prevention into the discharge process. One thing the studies point to is the importance of including end users in developing these interventions because this will help programs address the unique challenges and concerns of individuals re-entering the community from prison. 
at the organizational level, leadership that fostered a, quote, culture of change, unquote, as well as collaborations with community providers to provide training to correctional staff was crucial. A significant barrier to implementation, however, is the tension between a harm reduction approach that acknowledges the possibility of relapse to opioids following release and the adherence to abstinence-based recovery that pervades the criminal legal system, including among parole and probation officers who monitor individuals following their release. The last thing this review looked at was trying to understand the overdose risk environment, which is important for developing and implementing effective strategies to prevent overdose. The studies looked at when a person is most at risk, what existing service systems they might interact with during that time, and what individual and environmental characteristics increase a person's risk. As should come as no surprise at this point, a person is most at risk in the immediate period following discharge to the community, typically two weeks to 30 days. And during this time, people interact with a range of community-based service providers, which means there are a lot of opportunities for overdose prevention interventions. Those most at risk are those with the greatest severity of drug use disorder, those with mental health problems, and those who lack social support. In fact, indicators of mental health severity were consistently associated with overdose risk. As for the environment, when a person is discharged from prison or jail, they have access to drugs. They return to drug-using social networks, and they lack social and socioeconomic supports. And if that's the case, they're in trouble. These factors exacerbate risks of relapse and overdose. Knowing this can help programs both know who and what to target. Saving lives is the goal, and we've seen incarceration is the, one of the major risk factors associated with overdose death. And not only that, but the quality of those lives matter too. Incarceration and just being involved in the justice system comes with a litany of collateral consequences, including harms to career aspirations, disrupted family relations, and adverse health effects, just to name a few. So one measure of improved quality of life is staying out of the criminal legal system. Doctors Elizabeth Evans, Donna Wilson, and Peter Friedman took advantage of a natural experiment in two counties in Massachusetts to examine the impact of buprenorphine and reincarceration, probation violations, and on rearrangements. In other words, can medications for opioid use disorder help keep people out of the criminal legal system? Between January 1, 2015 and April 30, 2019, Franklin County Sheriff's Office was treating people with opioid use disorder with medications, and Hampshire County House of Corrections was not. So the research team decided to compare these two groups and see what kind of outcomes they had. To get their sample, the research team looked at jails, each jail's medical records and found 197 folks incarcerated in Franklin County and 272 folks incarcerated in Hampshire County who had been diagnosed with opioid use disorder between January 2015 and April 2019. They confirmed exactly who got medication while incarcerated and which type. Virtually all of the Franklin County sample received some sort of medication, with over 86% receiving buprenorphine. None of the Hampshire County sample received any type of medication. Then the team got administrative data from each site so they could check to see who was reincarcerated, who was charged with a probation violation, 
and who was rearranged in the year following their release. They found that offering buprenorphine in jail substantially reduced the risk of being reincarcerated or rearranged, but did not impact probation violations. So you might be thinking, but aren't there lots of factors that could impact probation violations? Aren't there lots of factors that could be highly correlated with being reincarcerated? I mean, what if Hampshire County just had people with longer criminal histories, a factor known to predict future justice involvement? The team used statistical models to control for differences between the populations in history of interactions with the criminal legal system and index jail status, meaning whether they were in jail pretrial or had been convicted. And after controlling for these factors, they found that Franklin County's population had a 32% reduction in risk of reincarceration. They found that this was especially true for property-related crimes, which they know makes sense when supposing that buprenorphine effectively managed the opioid use disorder and thus reduced associated drug-related property crime. They also know that the lack of differences in violations of probation or parole suggest that a variation in community correctional practices did not explain the findings. So, what do we take away from these three studies? We know that the two weeks following release are really, really crucial. And we understand what puts people most at risk of overdose death, and that there are real opportunities to save lives and improve the quality of lives. But knowing is not enough. No amount of science in the world is going to change systems. Anyone working in these spaces knows that the challenges of implementing programs to treat opioid use disorder in jails and prisons can seem innumerable. But that is the work ahead of us. Going from knowing to doing. So go forth and think about what you might do with this knowledge. What little piece of the system might you impact? That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.gmuace.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACEDIT is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACEDIT.